Hello all. Welcome to the Parley, the Hindu's weekly discussion podcast. This is Stanley Johnny, your host for this week. After a week's long standoff, Russia on Tuesday announced that it is pulling back some of its troops from areas close to Ukraine, signaling a possible de-escalation. But at the same time, it has said that it will continue large military exercises around Ukraine and that its core security concerns, particularly on NATO's expansionary open-door policy, remain unaddressed. What do we make out of all this? Is great power rivalry back in Europe? Does Vladimir Putin seek to rewrite the post-Cold War European security architecture? Will this crisis lead to conflicts? We have two distinguished guests with us today to discuss these issues. Ambassador P.S. Dakhavan, the former chairman of India's National Security Advisory Board, and Nandan Unnikrishnan, a former Moscow-based journalist and now a distinguished fellow at the Observer Research Foundation, New Delhi. Welcome to the parlay, Ambassador Dakhavan and Mr. Unnikrishnan. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Very nice to be with you. Ambassador. So Russia has always maintained that it has no plan to attack Ukraine but it has also mobilized some 130000 troops according to US American media reports on the three flanks of Ukraine which includes hundreds of combat aircraft dozens of warships surface to surface missiles S400 missile defense systems reconnaissance drones etc etc uh, and then uh vladimir putin russia's president has also issued demands uh you know demanded security guarantees from the west so what is mr putin's strategy or what is he trying to achieve well let me start with one statement that you made about the european security architecture i think what recent events have uh, shown up is the fact that the post cold war european security architecture is not complete as yet it is in fact not as stable as people normally assumed it was and uh, at least since 2014 when you've had this acrimonious russia us and russia europe uh, a standoff the 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 questions about what is a security equilibrium in europe have constantly arisen and what what the present action has done is very dramatically pushed it to the fore <laughs> and again of course this is something that has been going on for a long time in the the troops build up were first reported at the end of october and then it has been going on until i mean it's it's rising in a kind of a crescendo till it reached a stage where they said that you know russia has troops to invade all of uh, ukraine but what is president putin trying to do i think he is responding to what president biden uh, really did in june of last year when he extended a hand to president putin and said that look i want a predictable and stable uh, relationship with europe and the subtext of course is that he wanted america to get out of needless conflicts in europe and west asia and elsewhere of course the uh, withdrawal from afghanistan was one Uh, a demonstration of that to be able to focus at least externally on the simple uh, single principal adversary challenger of the us which is china and what president putin is trying to say to cut a long story short is that 
yes, if you want a predictable and stable relationship with Russia, Russia's security needs to be taken care of. I don't want to have to be constantly uh, uh, skirmishing with NATO all across, all along my periphery. If my security is guaranteed, then we are on our way to a predictable and stable relationship with the U.S. So essentially, that's what the deal is which uh, President Putin is seeking. Okay, Mr. Only Krishnan. So the Russians are trying to, you know, they have sent out the message very clear that this is what we want. Uh, and then now, uh, I know it's too early to reach conclusions whether uh, the crisis is de-escalating, but still, uh, let's say that uh, uh, yesterday's announcement of the partial pullback, pullback of Russian troops at least signals uh, that Russia is ready to de-escalate the crisis or to continue uh, diplomatic talks. Or let's say that an imminent uh, attack uh, has been uh, postponed. So what, what? how do you look at it? I mean, has Russia achieved anything out, out of its mobilization? Or it has got some security guarantees? Or what is the way, for, way forward? Well, I think, uh, first off, I have to uh, address the question of if Russia has got anything so far. Uh, well, it has most definitely not got security guarantees. Uh, whatever it had put forth as its uh, written documents, which were handed over in December, some of those uh, it has received a written response to, uh, which the Russian sources had described as inadequate, uh, to put it mildly. In some cases, they said that uh, the, the issues they had raised had not been addressed and there were responses to secondary issues. But there is, in my opinion, a significant victory that Russia has achieved. Of course, it's not enough to uh, diffuse the situation, but it is a victory. The fact is that the West, the United States-led West, has at last recognized what Russia has been saying since 1994, uh, if I'm not mistaken, that uh, the security architecture in uh, uh, Europe is not in accordance with uh, what they would consider uh, the security architecture should be, or to put it uh, bluntly as uh, Ambassador Raghavan did, that they have security concerns about their own uh, security and that these have to be addressed. The very fact that the West is willing to address these and discuss them, for me, appears to be a big victory for the Russians because just till recently, these uh, uh, demands by the Russians were poo-pooed and uh, sort of dismissed as uh, not sort of serious. That is point number one. Point number two, uh, has the situation been diffused? You know, I still believe that we are heading towards some kind of accommodation. Albeit the Russians uh, used a very heavy hammer to attract attention, but uh, they are also continuing to use it right now uh, to keep that attention. Now, do I believe the Russians are going to uh, invade uh, Ukraine? I don't think so for the simple reason that that defeats the purpose. I mean, the whole purpose of exercise is to 
acquire a certain degree of security. If you invade Ukraine, that is over. I mean, you're going to go back to a... The Russians may be successful. I mean, they may take bits and pieces of Ukraine or even half of Ukraine right up to the Dnieper River. Uh, they may be able to control, but uh, insecurities will only grow. So I think the way forward is accommodation. Yeah, thanks. Ambassador, uh, you are also talking about Europe. So let's look at Europe. Uh, see, three European leaders visited Moscow in the past couple of weeks. Hungary's Orban, France's Macron, and of course, German Chancellor Scholz. We, we also saw that Macron and Scholz taking leadership of diplomacy. Macron called for respecting Russian concerns and sought to revive the Normandy format talks, whereas Scholz, who refused to send weapons to Ukraine, said in Kyiv that Ukraine's entry into NATO is not on the agenda. So my question is, do you think Europe is taking a different approach towards Russia from that of the United States? Uh, well, you know, uh, you talk about NATO unity. Let's remember NATO is 28 European nations and two non-European nations, the US and Canada. Uh, Europe is right next to Russia. Europe has been facing the brunt of the Soviet as well as Russian uh, actions over the last many decades. It is obvious that Europe will look at Russia differently from uh, the US being the next door neighbor. And that's, I think, uh, important to understand also that any the impact of any actions that NATO takes in terms of sanctions, in terms of security, will first be felt on Europe, not on the US. So naturally, US, Europe's interest in an accommodation, Europe's interest in, in sorting out this matter is uh, immediate and existential, while the Americans is strategic and long-term. And that is a distinction that I think one needs to uh, keep in mind. Now, also, I would like to point out that over the last, what, what President Putin has achieved or Russia has achieved by this is gradually the West has come out more and more uh, uh, towards meeting Russian demands. Of course, Nandan is right. They have not gone anywhere near uh, ensuring that uh, Russia's uh, demands have been fully satisfied. But look at what you were talking about, the, the Normandy process and the Minsk agreement. You see, Russia has essentially, if you like, three demands when you, when you cut through all the... Uh, maximalist position that Russia has taken. It's got three demands. One is that Ukraine and Georgia should not join NATO. One is that the Ukraine impasse should be uh, resolved and the Minsk agreements exist since 2014-15. Russia's view is that, uh, uh, that particularly the US has obstructed the implementation of the Minsk agreement and at times also France and Germany. And the third is this mutual security guarantees that uh, we've all been talking about. Now, the uh, increasingly the West has been talking, everybody from President Putin, uh, President Biden downwards has said that, look, and, and this is what uh, Chancellor Scholz said in Kiev as well, that the entry of Ukraine into NATO is not on the cards. It's nowhere near happening. Of course, this is a kind of an uh, informal statement. The Russians keep wanting a legal guarantee. We'll come to that. But the Normandy process, which is the which is the Franco-German uh, initiative along with Ukraine and Russia to so, to implement the Minsk Accords on Ukraine, this is a fundamental 
uh, one of the fundamental demands of the Russians. And it looks like they are moving towards agreeing to that. That does not require any uh, separate concession from the West. And that, that's clearly one of the uh, takeaways which can, or off-ramps as the Americans like to say, which is available. The other point is about the mutual security guarantees. And again, yesterday, if you heard, or not, if you see what uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov told uh, President Putin in a publicly televised uh, address, you see the West has already agreed to a number of uh, guarantees, which again, here, the distinction between Europe and America is very important. You know, the, the uh, placement of short-term and short and medium-range missiles on either side of uh, the Russian border, that is in Europe, NATO in Europe and Russia, is very much in the interests of European security. Also, uh, they want to agree on a minimum distance uh, between the deployment of missiles. They want to have uh, an agreement on uh, prior notification of military exercises. So... A number of such confidence-building measures, by the way, in bits and pieces, these have already been offered to Russia. And that was confirmed by uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov to uh, President Putin yesterday. So these are steps that is, Europe is critically interested in. So uh, if we take this uh, into a larger question of the international order, uh, Mr. Krishnan, so uh, how... How do you look at, I mean, in a sense, my question is, yeah, we know what Mr. Putin's concerns are, what the Russian concerns are. And we know the Russians have been, as you yourself pointed out, the Russians have been talking about these issues for quite some time, since the 1990s. Why the mobilization comes now? Why Russia is asking for these legal guarantees now? In a sense, does Mr. Putin sense a moment of weakness in the United States hold over the international order? Or maybe after the Afghan pullout or whatever. So what is the international context of this crisis? Obviously, uh, uh, Stanley, that Mr. Putin at this point of time feels that this is the most opportune moment for Russia to press forward its demands. Uh, I am not going to get into this whole question of whether he perceives United States to be weak or not weak. For all of us, we are aware that despite what has happened, the United States still stays the preeminent power in uh, the world. The question, however, is slightly different. I think that Mr. Putin understands that the strategic interests of the United States are elsewhere currently. They are to deal with many domestic problems that the U.S. is going through, as well as at the international level, its focus is more on the... Uh, or its interests, if you want, uh, is more in the Indo-Pacific. So therefore, and as Ambassador uh, Raghavan pointed out, the withdrawal from Afghanistan and all, is all symptomatic of this desire to uh, have stable and predictive relationships elsewhere in the world so that it can focus on what it considers to be its uh, uh, primary area of challenge, which is the Indo-Pacific. Incidentally, that's something that the Indians should also welcome. Uh, having understood that, I think, I mean, or having uh, interpreted in this fashion, I think Mr. Putin feels that this is therefore the most opportune moment to attract the attention uh, through maybe some provocative behavior and try to push forth uh, 
your demands and hope that a negotiation will result in something that is uh, mutually acceptable or as Kissinger likes to say, something that is to mutual dissatisfaction. Thank you, sir. Uh, Ambassador, I mean, uh, now, uh, I mean, I, I want to know how do you look at India's position because India, India had recently abstained from a US-initiated vote at the UN Security Council, which is not new. India had taken this position uh, since 2014 on the Ukraine issue. Uh, but there are two arguments I have seen two arguments uh, in the press, uh, you know, uh, in, in, in comments. One is that, uh, especially Western scholars argue that, uh, you know, this, this, this crisis uh, would drive Russia further into or deeper into Chinese embrace. And also the crisis would, uh, you know, when if the United States is preoccupied in Europe and or if Russia um, you know, does anything adventurous on Ukraine that would further embolden China, posting security threats to India in the long term. And on the other side, uh, the counter argument is that Russia is a traditionally important partner, uh, a defense partner, and India needs Russia right now uh, very much, especially at a time when India is facing challenges in its uh, continental neighborhood. Uh, so, how do you look at India's response to this crisis, the Ukraine crisis? Uh, to start with, you talked about 2014 and now. You know, the situation in 2014 was very different because Russia had annexed Crimea. And we had this issue of territorial integrity and sovereignty. In spite of that, we found a way of not criticizing Russian action on Crimea. Here... The stand we have taken, I think everyone should be happy with because we said that we want a diplomatic solution which addresses the long-term uh, legitimate security concerns of all sides. And that actually is what all countries are saying that they want. So to that extent, you know, this is very different. It is not, you neither sided with Russia nor sided with the United States in a sense. But the, the, the other alternate possibilities that you mentioned is predicated on an outcome that Russia will invade Ukraine or the situation will become worse. Now, what we would like to see and what I think, in fact, President Putin and President Biden are trying to achieve is an accommodation. And that accommodation, if it works out, and there are, as you can see, there are these off-ramps available. And if these are taken, you then reach a situation of better equilibrium in Europe between Russia and the West. And that better equilibrium can only be good for India. Any exacerbation of this situation can be only good for China in a number of ways. Which is why, you know, I was I found it quite amusing when the US Undersecretary of State, Victoria Nuland, uh, said that, you know, China should uh, uh, persuade Russia not to take action in Ukraine. Why should China do that? Actually, it is to China in China's interest if there is greater exacerbation of the problem. The U.S., which is bogged down in Europe, is exactly what China would like. So you're actually looking at a situation where if these, uh, in spite of the, this belligerent uh, posture results eventually in a, a kind of a, a, a amicable uh, a solution, I think it's good for India. It, it, it enables the U.S. to focus on the Indo-Pacific, which is exactly what India wants. It enables the U.S. to focus on China, which is again what India wants. And it leaves to a certain extent, it, it, it leaves India 
free to deal with Russia without a censorious US breathing down our necks on CATSA and other such sanctions for uh, defense purchases? So the Chinese question, uh, Mr. Only Krishnan. Simple question. How deep is the Russia-China partnership? President Putin had traveled to China in the middle of this crisis and President Xi Jinping had uh, you know, welcomed him. They issued a 5,000-word long statement uh, in which both of them were addressing their core concerns. China talking about, I mean, the joint statement was talking about NATO's expansion, uh, the Indo-Pacific policy strategies of the United States in the Asia-Pacific region, etc., etc. So how deep is this partnership? Well, I would say that since the 50s, I think this is the closest that uh, China and Russia have ever been. Uh, there are many factors uh, for this. And uh, let us also not forget that uh, both of them have been declared adversary by the United States uh, in official documents. So, you know, this is a peculiar situation where the demand being put on Russia is that while your uh, uh, partner calls you an adversary, you must behave towards them as a very good friend. I mean, you know, obviously Russia is going to take steps uh, to protect its interests. And if this uh, moves it towards uh, uh, China, I mean, that is a price that they will have to pay. But on the other front, there are still many areas, I think, and if you look at it just even from simple issue of pride, the Russians did not want to kowtow to the US and therefore all the West as a whole. And that's what's led down to the breakdown of uh, the relationship with the West because the West was not affording them what they considered an equal partnership. Why would Russia then break one relationship which uh, uh, it was seeking through the 90s and maybe even in the beginning of the 2000s and opt for another option where it will be a junior partner once again. So I don't think that is in the Russian psyche, this being a junior partner and all. So therefore, I would say that uh, I, it's a matter of concern for India. India should continuously monitor the situation. But at the same time that it has not reached a stage where uh, Russia and uh, China are in some kind of, you know, iron alliance or unbreakable partnership or something like that. I think they still have their differences. Uh, those differences have not been bridged. And even on the issue of Ukraine, I think reflecting what Ambassador uh, Raghavan pointed out, uh, that it suits China's uh, interests to have the U.S. embroiled in Europe, uh, if you notice, the word Ukraine does not occur in that long joint statement that they have issued. Uh, China does as, uh, uh, talk about Russia's legitimate security concerns and mentions uh, NATO, but there is not once Ukraine mentioned because China has equally strong interests, not equally, but has strong interests in uh, maintaining a good relationship with Ukraine. And on... Uh, the Crimea, I think uh, President Putin himself has acknowledged it. The statement that India made at the time was probably the strongest expression of support by anyone. So in a, in a nutshell, I think the Russia-China relationship is something 
that India should closely observe. It is uh, reaching, it may at some stage cross the critical point, but that uh, uh, part has not yet been reached and it is in the future, if at all it has to happen. Thank you. Ambassador, lastly, one last question. So both of you talked about some kind of an accommodation. So how do you see what, I mean, what, what would be the features of those that accommodation? How, um, practically speaking, how Russia's security concerns could be accommodated by the West? Practically speaking, as I said, there are these three issues. If the uh, Ukraine impasse is dealt with in the Normandy process by France and Germany, of course, along with Ukraine and Russia, uh, if the Minsk agreement, which is uh, meant for that purpose, which has been approved by the UN Security Council as well, if the US gives the green light to taking this process forward, which would, of course, mean uh, opposition from Ukraine. Ukraine does not like the Minsk agreement, though it is there. It is there and it is the only thing that exists. So if a way can be found by... it is This is basically the West which has to persuade Ukraine uh, in to accept the Minsk agreement. That is a clear uh, 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 give. And I mean, that's a clear plus for, for this... Uh, settlement of the uh, issue that issues that are there. Second is the issue which I consider almost settled in fact. If you see what uh, uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov uh, told President Putin yesterday, in terms of security guarantees of placement of missiles, distances between uh, the, the uh, deplo- NATO deployments and the deployments on the Russian side, uh, confidence building measures, forced postures. These are issues that once you launch negotiations, they will take time, but they are clearly into mutual benefit. And these are not controversial either on the side of Europe or on the side of Russia. The third issue is about Ukraine joining uh, NATO. You know, as long as Crimea remains in Russia's possession, and please note in all this controversy that has been talked about all this while, Crimea has not been mentioned at all. Neither the US nor Europe has said that Russia should vacate Crimea as part of the security guarantees. As long as Crimea remains with Russia, a part of Ukraine, that is, remains with Russia, and as long as these two uh, breakaway republics of South Ossetia and Abkhazia remain, uh, which are the Georgian breakaway republics, uh, uh, their independence has been recognized only by Russia and by nobody else. Russian troops are there. So as long as these two remain, Neither Ukraine nor Georgia can join NATO because one of NATO's principles before they admit a country is that that country should not have disputes over its territory. Therefore, once that is tacitly accepted, that amounts to saying without anybody giving guarantees or without anybody having to say that this country shall not join NATO, they will continue to say it's the right of the country to apply. It's the right of NATO to accept. But in practice, it will not happen. And everyone knows that. So these three elements... I think, exist for a solution. And I think, uh, essentially, both sides are looking for an opportune moment to get off the tigers that they are sitting on in order to uh, reach this. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much, Ambassador Raghavan and Mr. Unnikrishnan for joining us. Thanks for a wonderful discussion on the Ukraine crisis. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for inviting us. Thank you. Thank you.